the distinction is not even that meaningful. Right? You could yeah. be someone who persona-wise is closer to retail, but moves money or has impact of someone who normally classifies institutional. Composer will create the technology that makes it possible for people who would normally be in this retail bucket to have both the tooling of institutional investors and those tools, and also not just the tools for their own investments, but also the tooling to become what normally you'd have to be like a hedge fund manager. So right now there's a huge barrier to access, both in terms of investing in more sophisticated strategies or asset classes, let alone if you want to become a fund manager. Happy Tuesday and welcome to Not Boring Founders. I've known today's guest, Ben Rollert, for probably about six years now. We worked together at Breather. The first time I met him, I thought he was the smartest person that I'd ever met. He was on the data science team. I was the New York City general manager. We started working together. He was the brains of the operation. I was, I don't know exactly what I was, but I was something. We started working together. He became the head of the digital product at Breather. I became the head of the physical product and we worked super, super closely together. We did a bunch of things like figuring out how to turn the company from negative gross margins to positive gross margins, had a lot of fun along the way. We were in the office of the CEO there together. Ben's one of the best people I've ever worked with, hands down. So after he left Breather, when he said he was starting a new company, I knew that I was in. Composer, the company that he founded with Ananda Isola and Ronnie Lee, who was also a coworker of ours at Breather was actually the first investment that we made out of the Not Boring Syndicate. So it really kind of gave me the start in my venture capital career. And already that one is doing really, really well on paper as Founders Fund came in and led the seed and Not Boring Capital doubled down. I'm really excited for you to get the chance to meet Ben. He's one of the people that I talk to the most, probably the person that I would use my phone a friend lifeline on if I were on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Uh, and I've been so impressed with the way that he's kind of transitioned into becoming a CEO and a leader of Composer. This company is going to be huge, and today you're going to learn why. But first, speaking of investment apps, a word from our sponsor of season two of Not Boring Founders. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, FTX US. If you've been listening to Not Boring Founders and noticed that it's gotten a little bit better over the past couple of weeks, you have FTX US to thank. And if you've been following crypto over the past couple of years or listen to those episodes, then you know all about FTX. They don't just sponsor Not Boring Founders. They sponsor the Miami Heat Stadium, the Mercedes F1 race car in Lewis Hamilton, and even Tom Brady. The company is just three years old, but this past year, FTX International raised money at a $32 billion valuation, and FTX US just raised $400 million at an $8 billion valuation. When a good friend of mine listened to the podcast, he was so impressed that I was working with FTX US. He's a DGen. He's been in the space for a while and he wants to work there. That he asked me to reach out to FTX US on his behalf. He said it's the best job in crypto right now. Its founder, Sam Bankman Freed, is the richest 29 year old in the world with an estimated net worth of about $22 billion. Now, FTX built its reputation on offering the best crypto derivatives products in the world. It's for professional traders but it's quickly grown to be a top three exchange by volume and by users, and it's used by retail users like me. FTX US is rapidly growing into one of the largest US exchanges. And if you haven't used it, now you can with the FTX app. The FTX app, which was born out of the company's acquisition of Blockfolio, is the most complete crypto app 
It allows users to do all sorts of things like buying crypto with no fees, buying NFTs with no fees, using a crypto debit card, tracking their entire crypto portfolio, and even getting important news updates. It's an easy place to buy crypto like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Solana with zero fees in a matter of minutes. The FTX app is cheaper than any other cryptocurrency exchange. There's no fixed minimum fee on transactions, no ACH transaction fee, no withdrawal fees. These guys know what they're doing. And you can even set up recurring buys directly from your bank account for a dollar cost averaging strategy. As you'll hear today from Ben, sometimes the best thing is just to set it and forget it. But instead of listening to me talk about it, just go try it for yourself. Go to your app store of choice, download the FTX app, and when you sign up, enter my code, not boring, all one word. For even more convenience, I just put a link in whichever podcast player you're using. Just click that link, download the FTX app, set up an account, and when you trade your first $10, you'll get a free coin. It's a great way to start trading crypto, and it's a great way to say thank you to FTX US for sponsoring season two of Not Boring Founders, and conversations like this one with Ben Rollert of Composer. Ben, welcome to Not Boring Founders. Hey, man. Nice to, uh, nice to see you again. So as we were talking about before the show, really starting to professionalize this thing, we have a fancy new sponsor now in, in FTX US. I have a microphone that's not bad. I don't have a smoke detector beeping in the background. And one of the things that I want to start doing is asking everybody the same intro question that I think is one of the things that I like thinking about with companies the most, which is what will the world look like in 10 years if Composer succeeds? So I think I can break down the, the answer to this question into like three main components about, and it all, you know, has consequence for what I think asset management will look like, investment management will look like in, uh, in, in 10 years. And the first is that there will be a new sort of atomic unit or, or critical container or wrapper uh, that will that will become dominant beyond just ETFs. So right now, you know, just to give some background, ETFs are exchange-traded funds. ETFs uh, are really a phenomenal uh, invention. And if you want more background and context, I really recommend the book Trillions by, by Robert Willsworth. But they're a really phenomenal invention because it allows you to buy and sell these baskets of securities uh, that are updated according to some logic um, and, and buy in and out of them as easily as buying or selling a stock. But there was actually a lot of product innovation that had to go into, uh, into the creation of the ETF. The really interesting thing here is that like, since the ETF, which really, which really came out in 1993 or so, there hasn't been a lot of fundamental innovation. And uh, what composers created is something called the, the symphony. Uh, and a symphony uh, is a wrapper or container that is like a layer of abstraction above ETFs. So, so a symphony allows you to actually bundle uh, logic and a set of decisions on when to buy and sell stocks, ETFs, or other assets. And the really critical thing here is that the symphony is decoupled uh, in our architecture from both uh, the data input and also the, the execution outputs. So the thing here is that you could actually uh, add in new data sources as they come and actually also add in new uh, counterparties to execute trades with as, as they develop. So you could actually add new instruments and things like that. So it's, it's a lot more flexible and extensible. And a little we bit more composable. Composable. Hence the name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the name composer, and this is how the whole music metaphor gets together. Yeah, and, and so one of the really incredible properties of, of symphonies is, is this concept 
of composability and, and that they, they, they're made out of these infinitely uh, combinable building blocks. And that also means that in the future, you can create symphonies that are composed of other symphonies, which are in turn composed of uh, other symphonies. So there's this sort of like Russian doll uh, stacking here. So there, there, there's, there's, there's sort of this infinitely recursive data structure there uh, that makes them extraordinarily powerful form of form of abstraction there's an actual visual representation of a symphony you could inspect it you can understand its history so there's a level of transparency and interoperability that you don't have currently with etfs or, or certainly not mutual funds or hedge funds so it's it's really bringing asset management into using modern software thinking so so that's that's one really big thing that's going to happen if 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 composer makes its mark is that in 10 years symphonies are going to be uh, this this new unit, this new container that that really forms sort of like the backbone of of asset management. So at that point in the future, will I be able to go to my brokerage account and buy somebody else's symphony the same way that I can buy an ETF now? Or how do you see people actually interacting with symphonies in, in the marketplace of symphonies in the future? Yeah, right now the thinking obviously is that you use Composer to to buy and sell these symphonies. In the future, yeah, there's nothing to stop that kind of interoperation. There's many ways that we could actually create it so that you could actually buy and sell symphonies and, and they're interoperable across maybe different exchanges. Uh, and that is something where I think DeFi will definitely definitely play, play a role, um, where you could actually have a way to, to have a record or a ledger uh, saying that, you know, this symphony, you know, it belongs to this person and, and that kind of thing. So, you know, and I'll get, get to that, uh, get to that in, a, in a bit. But yeah, I think that there, there are a lot of ways to do that. They probably won't rest though on on the same sort of structure that etfs work on so it's not going to be the traditional process uh sort of creation redemption process in the way that etfs currently work on exchange like that like with traditional exchanges it won't be like a traditional exchange mechanism what are and i know i'm interrupting you we have two more points here but like what are traditional exchanges going to look like in a decade are there going to be traditional exchanges will like will asset management even feel and look the same way now? Or like when you talk about yeah. being able to buy a traceable symphony on DeFi rails, like it just seems like it actually just makes a whole lot more sense than, than the way things work today and like much more kind of discrete uh, yeah. packets. Like, I, I don't know. How, how do you see that? Yeah. So even though I'm, I am definitely an optimist, although not quite as optimistic as you, I'm kind of like in this like <laughs> between, but, um, but uh, I, I do think that 10 years probably still, frankly, and I hate to say this, is probably not long enough to come overcome all of the regulatory hurdles there. Maybe in 20 or 30, all that stuff will go away. I don't, I'll be honest, I, I think we will still have traditional exchanges in 10 years for sure. And you'll sort of have like a parallel ecosystem forming there. But a lot of that is actually more, I think the technology will be there. I think the technology, yeah. I think it's, it really comes down to, to regulation. And like the, the next 10 years, a lot of this, is going to be making advances and we are starting to, but like, we're going to need smart regulations that allows for, for innovation and, and these things to flourish. But I mean, obviously there's trillions of dollars that are, that are trading on these more traditional exchanges. I don't think they're, they're going to disappear. Um, Liquidity kind of matters, right? And so if there are better products on the DeFi side of things, if institutions are able to interact, mm -hmm. if the liquidity starts moving over there, like, Regulation or no regulation, maybe like the exchanges will still exist, but it feels like wherever the most liquidity ends up is where liquidity and I guess kind of composability and the ability to kind of like slice and dice assets feels like wherever that happens is where most of the money will end up, which is where most of the activity and energy will be. I think it has to do a lot with more tra 
traditional asset managers or fund managers uh, are probably going to be more resistant to this type of change. So that inherently will keep a lot of liquidity in these more traditional exchanges. But again, yeah, I think there's going to be, I think that in 10 years, oh yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see a lot of alternatives. I mean, you're already seeing, for example, with equities, a lot of activity has moved off exchange, for example, and happens in dark pools. So, you know, that, that's already, that's already affected where the liquidity is, right? So, so yeah, it's a very valid point. I do think that there's, that, that, that stuff can change pretty quickly. The question is, could you even like tokenize securities? People are doing that now. As a regulated company, I'm being, uh, I'm being a little cautious here because, because yeah, a lot of this has to, to, to do it legally is, is, is the question, but I think te technologically, yeah, there's no question. All right. So I think this was like the first of many fun night paths we're going to go on, but back to point two about what the future looks like when Composer succeeds. So the, the, the second point is that I think that the lines between retail and institutional investors are going to continue to blur. And, and this is another thing that you see a lot with crypto, right? Already the distinction is not even that meaningful. Right? You could yeah. be someone who personalize is closer to retail, but moves money or has the impact of someone who normally classifies institutional. Composer will create the technology that makes it possible for people who would normally be in this retail bucket to have both the tooling of institutional investors and those tools, and also not just the tools for their own investments, but also the tooling to become what normally you'd have to be like a hedge fund manager. So right now there's a huge barrier to access, both in terms of investing in more sophisticated strategies or asset classes, let alone if you want to become a fund manager. And in 10 years, you'll be able to use a platform to, to actually monetize and create and distribute your, your ideas. There are a lot of companies now kind of, it feels like skipping a bunch of steps and just going right to, we'll let somebody who has an audience kind of design ETFs or design strategies that other people can follow trade. I've seen a lot of that kind of stuff in the market. What do you think that approach gets wrong and what do you think Composer is doing differently there in terms of sequencing? Yeah. So the biggest problem that I've seen with historical attempts at creating these sorts of marketplaces where people can either copy trade or invest in someone else's trading is that there are huge principal agency problems and sort of a perverse set of incentives where there's the incentive on the supply side of these marketplaces to just sort of slam the marketplace with tons of overfit strategies that they might look good on a back test or just flooding it with as many, just as much spaghetti that you throw at the wall as possible, hoping that some of it sticks. And then on the, on the demand side, people can get really burned that way. And we've seen that over and over again, because it's, it's sort of like a free call option, right? Like there's no downside. There's no cost, right? If there's no cost to submitting a strategy, why not just submit as many as possible? And if some of them work, you get rich. If not, they just, you know, you don't, you don't lose anything. So I'm really interested in some of the stuff that like uh, Numerai has done. I think they're more influential than they get credit for. I'm pretty impressed by some of the stuff they're doing because one of the things they figured out is that if you actually have people stake something, so you can actually have your, your stake burned for submitting a strategy, it really incentivizes more, more truthful, more honest behavior. So people have a disincentive to submit garbage strategies. So you have to, you have to have some sort of symmetry of risk and reward uh, of loss and reward to, to sort of stop some of that, some of that bad behavior. With Composer, one of the things that we're experimenting with is this concept that you could actually use NFTs, uh, as a way to, as a way to do this. So there are ways that you could use DeFi protocols uh, to essentially 
price the value of having access to someone's strategy. So you could actually create a marketplace or and use, use a secondary marketplace for price discovery of what is the value of having access to a strategy. So like a couple months ago, I actually like posted, it occurred to me, I'm like, how much would you pay to have access to invest in Renaissance Technologies Medallion Fund? And so for context, Renaissance uh, Technologies Medallion Fund is far and away the highest performing hedge fund of all time. Pre-fees, I think it's like 66% annualized return. It's incredible. So, uh, and it's done so well that they've actually had to, to lock down new investors, right? It's only the firm's money at this point because they're, they're already hitting capacity limits. It's doing so well. So I asked, like, how much would you pay to just have the right to put $10,000 in, right? So, so just being allowed to put $10,000 in. And the answers I got from more sophisticated people was like thirty to 40000 it tended to all hundred. So, so a multiple of the principal investment, you would pay a multiple of the principal investment to now invest. And that's like pretty conservative, actually. You're, you're the math guy here. That makes itself up in, in how long? If you put $30,000 in 66% returns net of fees, you're at 16K in, one, in year long. two, you're 23K, you're, you're there in three years. And then it's, and then it's, yeah, it doesn't take long. Um, and, you know, even with a high hurdle rate of say, well, I assume that my, you know, it's, it's everything above say the, you know, the S and P yada, yada. So even so, yeah, you're, you're making it back in a few years. So, uh, that's pretty conservative. And I think that that discount was just like, it was forward looking. So it's like, what if that fund stops performing as well in the future? But yeah, like in hindsight, oh yeah. Like the value is way higher than just 30, 40. You'd pay many multiples of that. Uh, if you could, if you could guarantee the performance that's had historically, but, but there's no, no market that says like, what is the value of access to the strategy? And that's kind of weird, right? So it becomes like this very inefficient process. It's closer to like paying like a, a finder's fee or getting lucky uh, for like finding an apartment in a rent control apartment in New York, which is ironic, right? For something that's supposed to be, you know, the, the epitome of capitalism, getting into a top hedge fund is, is like one of the most random processes, right? Like it's about like, do I happen to know this person? And, and, and there's finder's fees, right? To even be able to get an allocation to a better, a better fund. Yeah, and it's very much connection and status driven to even have that access. It's, it's not, it's not an efficient process. So if we could create some efficiency around that, uh, and a more, and a, more, a fairer process for that, that'd be really, really awesome. And then, and then in that, in, in doing that also have a, a better valuation of management quality of active management, like active management is still mostly a shit show. It's still a very opaque, very poorly understood thing. What does an NFT allow you to do here that you couldn't do without uh, NFT or with Web3 tools generally, one of the things that comes to my mind is like, how do you do programmatic lockups? Like one of the reasons that yeah. someone might get into a hedge fund and another might not is because they know that that capital is going to be more patient and it'll be there through good times and bad. But I guess you could probably program some of that stuff right into the NFT itself. How do you think about the, the tools that Web3 gives you here? An NFT is, is tradable, right? Like it's tradable. So the, the fact that an NFT can be sold in a secondary market in our context, you'd initiate an NFT, it would give you, it'd be like a ticket that gives you access to a certain amount of allocation in a fund. People can get, uh, you know, a royalty on it, right? That already kind of naturally aligns this. So you don't need these artificial contracts that, that lock things up because if you sell prematurely, if it's a good manager, you know, the value is going to, is going to rise. So, so it automatically incentivizes people to, to hold that token, to hold that access. So I think that a lot of things that are being done very crudely through legal, if you create the right economic incentives, you don't even, 
you know, in an ideal world, you don't need that because that's very crude, right? Like having these very like crude, like it's one year or, you know, you have this amount of lockup or whatever. Like that's, that's, that's a pretty crude way of, uh, of handling that. It's better just to align people's incentives directly economically. But show me the incentives. I'll show you the outcome. You know, that's, that's what I believe. It's, it's wild that people, you know, talk about the financialization of everything as a bad thing. And it, in a lot of ways it is, but it is in a lot of cases, really nice to have a spectrum instead of just like these discrete options that none yeah, of which are kind of exactly. perfect. When you zoom out, you realize that financial history is really, really important. That financial innovation has grown in lockstep with, you know, real economy innovation. When you zoom in, there's bullshit. There's always been bullshit that, that isn't, that isn't real growth. But when you zoom out, you start to really see the patterns that without financial innovation, you don't have, you don't have the mark. So it's all about, I think, centering, like, is this financial innovation going to unlock something that didn't exist before? And I, and I think that's the really important question. So, so it's not either or. Okay. This particular financial innovation, what does it unlock? Because I mean, my, my favorite, you know, like my favorite thing that, that hedge fund managers and people in finance generally do is say like, what value do you add to the world? And they're like, we provide liquidity. And I've always thought that was funny. I actually appreciate it. Yeah providing liquidity more now than I ever have before. I, I used to think it was just like a bullshit answer. But what, what do you think this unlocks if there is a marketplace for the best kind of investing ideas? I think that what it unlocks is, is twofold on the demand side, on the consumer side. I mean, the average retail trader, you have to remember, still gets much worse returns than the average hedge fund. It's really not a fair comparison to say, oh, hedge funds do worse than the S&P. But well, okay, but retail traders do way worse than hedge funds because nobody just was 100% in the S&P. I'm not sure that's the right benchmark. Now, if that is your benchmark, I do think it is actually possible uh, in, in risk-adjusted terms that there are strategies that should do even better. There are like, you know, just using risk parity. I'm not even saying that you're necessarily truly generating alpha. Just through using sort of modern risk parity type strategies, if you, if you, wanna, if you really want to accept the level of volatility of the, of the S&P 500, you should be able to assemble a portfolio that, that actually has higher returns, uh, in, in theory, uh, you're, you're not optimally, you don't have like a truly efficient portfolio if you're hundred percent in the S and P anyways. So what, what that means is that people are leaving a lot of returns relative to risk on the table by having suboptimal strategies. The average per, average retail trader has, has frankly terrible, just have a really terrible approach. Uh, that's not judgmental because sort of like a lot of the other alternatives are really, really boring. It's not just about intellectually understanding something. You need to make it fun enough yeah. and, and, and also digestible enough that you will actually stick to it. And that was kind of like the whole Morgan Housel psychology of money thing. That was so true. It's like, it's not about what you intellectually know you should do. It's what you actually do. <laughs> so if we can make it so that people actually get good returns, that's what fucking matters. Not that like these hypotheticals of like, well, blah, 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 blah. like, you know, this would have been a poor this. It's like, well, okay, but if we can actually make people get way better returns because they actually enjoy doing it, then we've, we, we, we've succeeded. So that, that, that's the first side on the actual consumer side. And then the second is that what if we create the ability for people to make a real income through our platform, if they can actually generate money in a way where like now it's a lot more meritocratic of a process, that's also really, really powerful because that actually generates income and wealth for people who would have otherwise been cut out of investment management. And, and right now, investment management, is, it's not a meritocratic process at all. So just doing those two things, I think, are, are, uh, are really important 
Although I want to be clear, what we're doing alone is, is enough, right? Like we do need people just to be clear. Like someone's asked me, I was like, a lot of the stuff I'm most excited has nothing to do with finance. Like, you know, we, we need, we need finance to actually finance the things that well, will actually fix and build infrastructure and build all the things in the real world. Like I'm never, I'm never going to yeah. bullshit that, that, that this is enough, right? Like, well, that's, that's what I'm going to say. We're not going to cure our biggest problems with Composer alone. It's really, I'm super excited about it. It's super important, but no, it's not. Uh, it's certainly not sufficient. <laughs> it is, it is itself a building block in like the, in the larger. Yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm doing my best. That's all I can do. But we need people with smarter, even grander ambitions to actually fix the world of atoms. And- the world of healthcare and, and climate and all those things too. I'm more familiar right now on the private market side, but you know there is, a, I think, a problem that happens in the world when you don't allocate capital correctly. Because I have a newsletter able to kind of allocate capital to a bunch of different areas where there's definitely, I mean, obviously, people who can allocate to healthcare and climate and all of these things better than I could. Exactly. But yeah. I'm better at fundraising. Like, so the third piece to me of composer is like if you can identify the people who are good at particular things and get them the money to go fund those things like that seems like a pretty big win in itself i I was talking to gosh my sister and and another entrepreneur uh both in both in africa who were just talking about like two companies in particular that have raised a bunch of money that are african kind of fintech companies raised a bunch of money and neither of them knows anybody who uses the products but like you know u.s investors come in and they see inflated growth numbers and they're like, all right, that's that's the one. Like, we're gonna dump money into this. Where, like, if you gave money to either my sister or this other entrepreneur and said, like, go invest in fintech in Africa for totally. me, as you know, like, I worked in the Philippines briefly at a VC fund. Like, there's no way anybody outside would would have known of these companies. And talking to entrepreneurs there, like, it is wild how talented some of these people are, and the ridiculously predatory terms they have to put up if they can get capital at all. Like we forget that. So it's like, or actually I don't forget it because even for me, it was hard, hard initially raising mics. Cause I think I'm, I'm a pretty lucky person in the, in the broader, broader scope of things. And like, it was still hard not having those like traditional SV networks. I don't think people in Silicon Valley realize fully cause it's, it's fun to complain about the place now. And I, I've never lived there and I don't want to live there, but I will say like, oh my God, over the last decade, and we, we both know this, like the geographic advantage of being in Silicon Valley. I don't think real, a lot of people think what they did was like, it was a fun function of scale. It was like, no, a lot of it was you were physically in the right geography. And, and there are some tremendously talented people who would make incredible entrepreneurs who have no access to capital. Like it's hard enough just being in like middle America. I get people, uh, pinging me all the time because they were inspired by, by our story, raising money who are saying like Tennessee or Ohio or whatever saying, Hey, like I live in a place, there are no VCs. Uh, there's just like, maybe like some like old like real estate barons that I'd have to raise money from. Like, can you, can you help me to figure out how to do this? So the reality is uh, on the other side too. So yeah, like there's a lot of people who are way better at allocating capital. And then on the other side, like, so yeah, you get junk that gets funny. And then you get people who are, who are amazing, who aren't getting funded. So, oh no, that's like, it has real human consequence. Like properly allocating capital to its best use, like is a, is a very good and important thing. And, and will help level inequality, frankly. I mean, it just, it would make a more just world if the right people can actually get fun because most of them can't still. It's, it's easy to forget. It's not even, and you don't even have to go to developing countries. It's like in, in the US and Canada, even. You know, if you're in the Maritimes or something, there's, there's phenomenally talented people in like New Brunswick or whatever. If you're in New Brunswick, it's not easy to raise venture capital, right? It's not yeah. not a big VC industry. Was there, was there a third point on the future? I think there's going to be a really big shift where we, we stop thinking of investing as this very dreary 
uh, sort of almost like bean counting exercise and start seeing it as much more of an exciting creative endeavor. Right. Like, like when you look at tools like, uh, Figma or, you know, Webflow or some of these things, like they're fun to use, they're cool, they're creative. The tools help shape certain types of creative workflows. Whereas most tooling and finance right now really works against you. And some of that is the ethos of finance. It's like supposed to be a combination of boring and hard to use. And it's sort of like, we want to see investing become a, a more of a creative endeavor. And I think creativity might have a, a negative connotation in finance because like creative accounting, for example, is an incredibly pejorative term for good reason. In the context of like strategy, I think that strategy creation is one of the most intellectually challenging and creative processes there is like, to really generate alpha in today's world. So competitive, like you need a variant perspective. You need to think in a very creative, divergent ways. And you need to really, a lot of it is about idea generation. We're going to start seeing investing, drawing in more people from different backgrounds. I think there are people who right now don't even realize, like there are people who work as product designers who might turn out to be great, great investors and with the right tools, especially. We've already seen that. We've, we've seen people who didn't think investing was something they would get good at, or certainly not qu more quantitative or systematic investing. And they're playing with Composer and loving it, right? And coming up with some really cool ideas that I would never have thought of. I think we underestimate what, peop what, what people can do who don't come from traditional backgrounds and, and what they can contribute to this. Investing over the past, call it two years, has become maybe more fun for some people, but they've been doing it in a way that like now turns out was not, not such a great way. And I'm guilty of this too. Like I, I have fun investing in like dumb stuff. If I'm not, you know, fully thinking through, I, I do kind of, I have, I have both sides of my brain, but like often my lizard brain will just be like, oh, it'd be fun if this thing went up. The thing that I really like about Composer is that it combines that kind of like fun, creative piece with like actually the like guardrails and the ability to like do smart things as opposed to just going like, naked long call options, which can be super, super fun until it's not. I really like the balance. Like, you know, I, I told you yesterday, I put a little bit more money in, in Composer and was just going through and put in like, you know, big tech momentum and the Dalio and hedge fund, hedge fundies, excellent adventure. And the kind of mixing and matching these like great ideas that either composers come up with or other people have come up with. That to me is fun too, thinking about how to construct a portfolio of other people's ideas. And then you can dig in and edit. Like that's, that's fun. But I, I know that I'm not going to like lose my shirt on you know, copy trading the Dalio, for example. Absolutely. You know, I think there's been this false dichotomy where either you are boring and smart or you, you can do things that are dumb and, and fun. But why can't you be smart and have fun too? Like, I think, I think being smart can be fun <laughs> in investing. And, and one of the really cool things is we haven't seen anyone blow out their account or even close to it, even with this recent market volatility, which I can tell you, I'm sure is not true for other trading apps. I, I mean, it's already obvious that people, <laughs> you can go on Reddit and see that people are, are losing all their money and getting margin calls and all these things, which is really sad. It's not funny actually for, for, for some of these, it's fucking terrible. Yeah. I don't want to tell people what to do or be overly paternalist, but I want to be able to steer them away from things that they never wanted to do. That's not really a great form of freedom. I don't see how it's empowering to let people blow out their accounts and get margin. You don't want it to go back to a spot where even fewer people are investing in the market. Even fewer people are getting access to oh, upside. Like you don't want to get there, but obviously, you know, if you get margin called, that is a really, really scary thing to have happen. And there are horror stories, even when they yeah. are going up, horror stories on Robin Hood with, with what could happen. So giving people the yeah. opportunity to earn upside in a way that they also feel like they have 
kind of agency and control over. Like it, it strikes a really nice balance. I guess we've gotten this far into recording. I think we've been recording for about 30 minutes and I haven't asked what Composer does today. Like how would you explain what Composer does today? So today Composer is an automated trading platform that allows investors to easily build a portfolio of systematic trading strategies. So instead of struggling to implement strategies yourself with tons of code, crappy Python scripts, or endless spreadsheets, a composer breaks the strategy creation process into building blocks that can be infinitely combined using a no-code visual editor. And then once you create a strategy that you like, you can easily deploy that strategy instead of manually executing straight. So the key here that it's, it, it automates all that logic for you. And if you're not ready to build a strategy from scratch, we have an awesome library of templates, like many no-code tools have. You can pick one of those, backtest it, play with it, understand it. And once you like it, you can deploy that. I was playing around with the yesterday. And to your point, like I'm putting on strategies that I myself could never actually design. Like there are some, we designed one together for me, but there are some that I, I would never, ever design that have all sorts of rules embedded in, like when, you know, the, the price of a certain asset goes up by this much, buy more if it's a momentum trade or sell if, you know, whatever, like there's all these rules baked in. And I literally clicked a button, typed in how much I wanted to allocate to that, hit enter. And then during the trading period, it just executed it for me. And then I looked in today and I have all of these assets kind of underlying that I didn't have to go in and add each asset itself, which is really nice. Like the Dahlia, the Dahlia has gold, TLT, IEF, VTI, DBC, and I clicked the Dahlia and that was it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty sick. <laughs> who are, who are the people who are using it right now? If I like look at like our power users, uh, they do skew right now into two camps. So they tend to be engineers, uh, product managers, founders. So you have sort of that category and don't really have like a formal finance background, but are into sort of like the no code side of things. So they're like probably like your early adopters in, in, in no code tools. And then you have the other side, which is like the finance geeks. So they're not software people but they have like finance MBAs uh, or they, they actually work in finance professionally themselves. So that, that, those are the two main categories. That said, it's already expanding. We're getting power users. There, there's this like long tail of like miscellaneous as well, which is really cool to see. With like people in Texas, Oklahoma, Iowa, working in industries that, that I would never have guessed who are like super into this stuff. So there's, there's the commonality here is that they had some interest in DIY finance. So like almost universally, you'll find that they have some Excel workbook that makes your eyes bleed. Like if I had to say like one predictor that Composer is going to be great, a uh, great fit is that you've tried to manage this stuff somehow. Like that's the white hot core because these are people that like they were in Excel, copy pasting like 40, 40 tabs deep, trying to figure out how to build some sort of way to keep track of what they're doing and build some sort of system. So, so anybody that's like rules based in their investing is, is usually uh, likely to fall in love with Composer. Which is super interesting because I, I am, I am not rules based in, in my investing, but I like it because of that. I think actually one of the most interesting challenges, like now that you've done a lot of the hard technical stuff, and I know there's a lot more hard technical stuff to come. I think one of the challenges is like making this kind of investing sexy. I, I've said this from like day one, that it's like making the sharp ratio, the sexiest thing that people look at as opposed to their percent return be like there's a different metric that, that is there but like the, making risk adjusted returns cool somehow is your huge opportunity because i i love i asked yeah. you before this for the 
the feature where I could see the sharp on my whole portfolio after I've combined a bunch of different symphonies. Like if I can have a big chunk of my money in something that I know is like fairly safe for the returns that I'm getting, I, I love that. Absolutely. I think, I think the problem with sharp and things like this is like the, the early power users will understand that. And one of the ongoing design challenges and UX challenges and it, in retail products is, is risk management and understanding of risk and, and making risk interpretable. Like if you put it like using all these stupid acronyms, like VAR and blah, 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 all of this, like people's eyes are going go, okay, this isn't for me. This is like stuff for institution. I don't work at Goldman Sachs, yada, yada. Uh, but if you could show like, Hey, in this back test, this was like the worst year and the worst month of this strategy. You can see the drawdown, which means like, you know, try to imagine could you stomach it if this went down 60%? Probably not. You'd probably panic. So you probably don't want something that draws down 60%. And I think everybody can understand that. And anybody that we be targeting will understand that. So, so being able to make risk more palatable and tangible and understandable, like I think, uh, I think is, is going to pay dividends. We've known each other for a very long time now, but I think your story of getting from doing data science at our failed real estate startup breather to ending up here is a really interesting one. Cause I think you went on this journey, maybe not with Excel, but with Python. Can you tell, tell me how you got here and how you've built a team around you to kind of like solve for the things that you just you know mentioned as, as kind of the biggest challenges. So as you remember, I left uh, breather a couple months before, before you did. And I was in like this, like uh, existential to do with my life. And I started just like to distract myself, started creating these like scripts in R and Python to trade the market. And why did I do that? Well, it's because I'd been so distracted. I had some, some liquid savings that were just sitting, right? And I knew that was stupid. And I've been interested in trading investing for, for since I was a kid, basically. So I was like, okay, well, there's nothing actually good off the shelf. Like there was not, there was no good uh, tools to do what I wanted to do. So I was like, you know, I really would love to implement like some of these risk parity strategies which is just like, I, I just knew that that's what Dalio did at Bridgewater. I knew that there was, it made sense. Can you actually just, I mean, it's just, we've talked about yeah. this, uh, this phrase a couple of times. What is a risk parity strategy? Yeah. So a risk parity strategy in layman's terms just means that you want to balance based on the actual risk of asset classes so that the contribution to your portfolio's overall volatility is equalized. So that if you have like bonds and stocks and commodities, each is contributing equally to the overall risk of, uh, of a portfolio. And oftentimes to do that, you have to lever uh, less risky assets to get up to a target return. So for example, let's say you have treasury bonds and they're not nearly as volatile as stocks. Well, you might add some leverage to those bonds to get them to a similar level of volatility. But the reason you do that and, and counterintuitively can actually, in some cases, reduce risk is that, yeah, you might have some risk from that extra leverage, but you reduce your concentration risk. You actually have a more diversified portfolio. So as an example, to get a more aggressive portfolio might be 80% equities and 20% bonds. But the problem there is that almost all of the volatility of the portfolio is, is driven by the equity portion because it's so dominant. It's such a dominant contributor of the volatility. And what Dali did is, you know, hit his white paper. Said, well, what if you actually had something where you actually engineered a portfolio where these different asset classes were equally contributing to the overall risk of the portfolio? You could actually get uh, a, a much higher risk-adjusted return. 
Anyways, there was no retail product off the shelf that allowed me to, to do this. So I started trying to implement this using some Python scripts. And, and I discovered in the process is that it's just like unfair and difficult and painful uh, for reasons that had nothing to do with the strategy. And then what, what the second realization was that a lot of my friends and family were actually really interested in what I was doing. They were like, no, I would love to invest in this too. I said, why don't you? And then I realized, well, for the same reason that they, 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 it was hard enough for me. I had some- Dear listener, let me, let me tell you, yeah. if Ben can't figure it out, I certainly can't figure it out. Well, so anyway, <laughs> if, when you have a huge gap between what people can intellectually understand and what they can actually implement, that's usually like a really good software opportunity. Because the power of software and well-designed software is to like abstract away incidental complexity. You're, you're going to have a certain amount of fundamental complexity. That's why like a product even today, like it is a more sophisticated product as it stands today because there is a certain amount of irreducible complexity in this domain. But like there was a that was incidental. It was like setting up a trading server, fucking around with interactive brokers, API, like all of that stuff is like the, the biggest pain in the ass in all of this. So, so if you can abstract away that incidental complexity, you can make the number of people that this is accessible to, you know, multiply, uh, expands dramatically. And, and that, that was when I realized that there was actually a, a commercial opportunity there, but it was very sort of, it was a very sort of circuitous, serendipitous sort of route of discovery that took me from this bottom up hack to, to an actual startup. Yeah. I mean, I remember you had made a Slack group that would send out kind of how everything was performing each day based on kind of, I think it was one or two strategies at the time. Now we have this beautiful software up. We have a working product. You can click a few buttons to invest. What's the team that you built to get from there to here? Yeah. I love you, but you're not a great designer, for example. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I'm not great at a lot of things actually. So I'm not great at most things, but I think the key to being a founder is recognizing that very, 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 very early. I mean, I had, I just got over that very quick, which was like, yeah, I knew that composer was the type of thing that had zero chance. Uh, if I did this solo, or I mean, and, and not even just like solo as a team, but like even as a solo founder, this is something that I'm so glad that I have, uh, my co-founders, uh, Roddy and Nanda, and then also the founding team behind me that, that built this. So I, I think, uh, Mikael and Anya were like two of the first people to, to join. So, so, you know, having like an incredible designer, having an incredible user researcher, because the UX challenges here are immense and then building up this incredible engineering team. I mean, yeah, like there, there's no question. So today we have 16 full-time people in total, very interdisciplinary backgrounds spread all over North America. And, uh, yeah, they're extending this initial idea in ways that I certainly never could have come up with. So not just that they can, yeah, there's the obvious that they can do things that are totally incapable of doing. And then there's also just the, the other really cool thing is the ideation. Like they're not just executing, like they're contributing and extending the vision. It's like this collective creativity that is so much greater than, than any one person could, could ever, could ever contribute. Yeah. So fun, fun fact is that Composer was the first investment that we made out of the not boring syndicate, which is making me look smart now, but we did that based on, you know, my knowledge and understanding and friendship with Ben and not of any product. There was no product at the time. I remember seeing, I think it was, <laughs> there was nothing. <laughs> the first, the first kind of like design that, that, that you guys put in front of me. And I was like, oh my God, I do not understand this at all. Like, I don't know how anybody <laughs> can understand this product. But yeah, because we, we saw 20 steps ahead, you know, like when you have it, I knew that we would get to where we are today. But it's because I, the team, 
had in our head where this was going to go like 20 steps later. Like we could see the 20 chess moves later. I understand that's very hard. If you don't see those 20 moves later, it looks like, what is it like? And it's on you to like make sure that, you know, the user doesn't have to think about 20 moves later. Now, I think the place that you've gotten it just from like, you know, really good design and from, we both worked with Anya before and she's phenomenal at at user research. So like, it makes sense that you'd iterate and get there. But the difference between that first version that I saw and where it is today is just like completely night and day. I'm just trying to get across, like, it is really easy actually now. And it was not really easy before. It's such an insane challenge, like the single hardest challenge. And frankly, the thing that people worried about in the very beginning when we were like raising our pre-seed was like, this is such an insanely hard UX challenge. Like people have kind of thought of similar things before. And generally people who come from more of a fintech finance background underestimate the UX challenge or they're not good at it. And I think I had the humility early to be like, I need to look at this challenge and be like, okay, this is formidable. And we have to accept that this is an insane UX challenge, like building tools like this are not, it's not like throwing together a, a landing page for t- toothbrush delivery with no disrespect to toothbrush deliveries. But the UX challenge here is utterly insane. And it can, and, and we, it's just something that like, you, know, you, you make a good product by starting with a crappy first draft and iterate, and we will never stop iterating on this. Like it, it will never be done. It's, we're just, we're always discontent with it. We, our customers will always be slightly discontent. And we're always going to be, to be moving that on the UX side. We'll never give up on the UX. It will never stop. So to wrap it up here, I think that's a good, a good place to go is just what kind of the next few months hold for Composer, like what you're most excited to work on now and then where people can find Composer and try for themselves. Yeah. So there's a couple things that we're, we're working on. One, one thing that's coming out imminently is that we're actually becoming essentially our own broker. So you can just fund a composer directly uh, instead of using like a separate account that just streamlines the whole process. And so like KYC and all of that becomes so much smoother and so much nicer. Uh, that was just a tremendous amount of work. I'm so proud of the team for getting that through. It was not easy, especially like you know, on, the, on, the, on the resources we had. It's, it's pretty wild. So that's super exciting. Slightly a little longer than that. We're looking at integrating crypto vendors, which nobody has done well. I'm so excited for that. Uh, there's There's so many really nice uncorrelated properties around crypto, crypto not investment advice, uh, that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that would make it really a great addition to, to these types of portfolios. Uh, and then the other one that a little bit longer than that is, is building out this marketplace. So this idea that people will be able to monetize their ideas, share their ideas with the world. You can already share your ideas, but I want to actually create a formal marketplace for people to distribute their, their symphonies. So yeah, we're, we got, we're, we got our hands full. We're, we're plenty busy. And then, yeah, if, if you want to try it, uh, we're still free today to so get started. So go to composer.trade and you can sign up, sign up there. So go for it. Check it out. Go to composer.trade. You heard it here first. The thing that I love, one of my takeaways from just talking to you throughout this process is, you know, the idea of diversification, making this simple. And the fact that I can add, you know, what people refer to as kind of like a riskier asset, like crypto to my overall portfolio and actually reduce a risk in the overall portfolio through diversification. So I am very excited to see the numerical impact of that once crypto is in there. I've been begging for this feature for a while. Thank you so much for coming on. We have to do a part two at, at some point here soon, but this will not be the last time that we talk. And that's. Thank you for having me. 